There is a hidden doctrine in Lutheranism, and today we are going to talk about it and why we need to bring it back. What do I mean by hidden? Well, not that it's necessarily explicitly denied by modern organized Lutheran groups, but Lord knows they wish they could. We are here to talk about the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, the universal priesthood. In the Pia Desideria, Spanner writes about it in his second section as an article of utmost importance. But last night, during deacon training, I asked our guys, when was the last time you heard a Lutheran pastor talking about the doctrine of the universal priesthood? One of them, having been an LCMS Lutheran for a very long time, hadn't heard anybody mention it in 20 years. Not a single mention of it. Another one had never heard any pastor bring it up at all. And these are men who still often go to church. We have a couple that run house church exclusively, but some of these men are looking at the catacomb synod as something they want to do at the same time, which is perfectly legitimate. So they're still going to church, and their pastors never bring it up. We had one, exactly one deacon who speaks about it and has gotten that conversation with his pastor. That's about it. His pastor will talk about it once in a while, but for the most part, it has fallen by the wayside. And I suspect that this is almost by design. On purpose, if not by willful neglect. You see, in the Pia Desideria, in the proposals to correct the conditions, the corrupt conditions of the church in the 17th century, Spener writes, Our frequently mentioned Dr. Luther would suggest another means, that is, another means of reforming the church, which is altogether compatible with the first. This second proposal is the establishment and diligent exercise of the spiritual priesthood. Nobody can read Luther's writings with some care without observing how earnestly the sainted man advocated this spiritual priesthood, according to which not only ministers but all Christians are made priests by their Savior, are anointed by the Holy Spirit, and are dedicated to perform spiritual priestly acts. Peter was not addressing preachers alone when he wrote, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, to be fair, there are all sorts of Lutheran pastors out there who will tell you you should be reading your Bible. With appropriate guidance, of course, but you should be reading your Bible. The head of the household should be instructing his family, making sure his kids are properly catechized as they grow. But it stops there. Referring to the second volume of Luther's works, when he speaks to the Bohemians, Spener writes, 
There one will see how splendidly it is demonstrated that all spiritual functions are open to all Christians without exception. Although the regular and public performance of them is entrusted to ministers appointed for this purpose, the functions may be performed by others in case of emergency. What are we speaking of there? We're bringing up even the sacraments, like holy baptism. A father in a household has the right to pronounce absolution, to baptize his babies, and even to consecrate the elements in Holy Communion. Not publicly, because that violates the authority of the priesthood of other believers in the congregation. He can't just get up there on Sunday and decide he is the priest every week without them selecting him. However, when was the last time you heard a pastor tell that to you? that you have, as a Christian, the right to do these things. Now, before somebody accuses me of advocating for women's ordination or some absurdity like saying I should be confessing my sins to my two-year-old and expecting him to pronounce absolution over me, Remember that Spanner has cited 1 Corinthians chapter 14, wherein St. Paul gives us orderly rule for the church, and that includes the private sphere as well as public. So in the next page here, Spanner says every Christian is bound not only to offer himself and what he has, his prayer, thanksgiving, good works, alms, etc., but also industriously to study in the word of the Lord with the grace that is given him to teach others, especially those under his own roof, to chastise, exhort, convert, and edify them, to observe their life, pray for all, and insofar as possible be concerned about their salvation. There is still an order to how we do church, and for St. Paul it is both an orderly practice of church as well as order of creation. There is hierarchy there, and a man, a head of a household, is to be the priest of his house. Though St. Peter says we are all priests of our Lord Christ, and that is all, all means all, there is still an order of creation to be observed. St. Peter does not contradict St. Paul when St. Paul says the pastoral office and the authority to teach, and having authority over others really, is reserved for men. Yet nonetheless, if a woman wants to call herself a priestess of Christ, as cringy as that sounds, technically speaking, she is correct. And she has the right to read Holy Scripture, to study doctrine, to instruct her children. We should not be repeating the same mistake as the first century Jewish communities that refused to teach young girls how to read or send them to the yeshiva schools to learn doctrine. They would only send in the boys because it was only boys that could be rabbis when they grew up, you see. And thus you had a whole lot of women who were ignorant of doctrine, or maybe they gleaned it from synagogue services. But when we do that, we are denying women an opportunity to have saving faith, or at least we are harming that probability. Now, I understand the fear. Oh, yes. 
If we say that women are also part of this spiritual priesthood, why there is the chance for spiritual anarchy and becoming Methodists or Episcopalians as they demand ordination, well, the answer to that is to just say no. But previously in church history, this same exact fear had been present regarding the distinction between priest and laity. What does Spanner say about Rome? He says it was by a special trick of the cursed devil that things were brought to such a pass in the papacy that all these spiritual functions were assigned solely to the clergy, to whom alone the name spiritual, which is in fact common to all Christians, was therefore arrogantly allotted. And the rest of the Christians were excluded from them as if it were not proper for laymen diligently to study in the word of the Lord, much less to instruct, admonish, chastise, and comfort their neighbors, or to do privately what pertains to the ministry publicly, inasmuch as all these things were supposed to belong only to the office of the minister. Members of the so-called spiritual estate could do as they pleased, since nobody dared look at their cards or raise the least objection. Oh yes, in Rome, the fear was that if you give this spiritual priesthood to absolutely everybody, well, suddenly every man's going to declare himself pope and make up doctrine, and we have a massive heresy problem again. Imagine hundreds of thousands of little Ariuses or Apollinariuses running around spreading heresy and damning souls. Ooh. But along with that careful measure, they ended up creating a doctrine of holy orders that made it so sacramental, you see, that the priest was ontologically above and superior to the laity. By definition, he was a better person, and he could do awesome superpower things like casting magic spells and telling people, I am sending you to hell right now. Such was the distinction of the Office of the Keys in Rome, that there is no spiritual priesthood for all believers in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, I'm sure maybe a Roman Catholic listening to this could say they've talked about and refined and redefined the doctrine in such a fashion that maybe it's less offensive than it once was. It really was the case that you could not question your priest. You could not confront him on anything, and you'd better not even dare to do anything that even looks like his job. Because after all, he is ontologically above you. He has the right to do these things you do not. Now, we would never, ever as Lutherans, ever see anything like that, would we? <laughs> in fact, in the 20th and 21st century, the development of Lutheran doctrine was such that the doctrine of rite vocatus has been somewhat weaponized against the priesthood of all believers. Oh, you'd better not question God's anointed pastor over his congregation. You'd better not do that. Oh, sure, there's the priesthood of all believers, and we want all of our laity reading their Bible, but you don't understand. If a man has both an immediate and immediate call, a regular call to a church, well, that means he's God's guy over that church. 
He needs to be afforded such great honor and respect that any accusation or confrontation against the man is just off base. It's so bad. What you need to do if you see your pastor doing anything is you need to go through the proper channels. And if we just so happen to not do anything to correct the wrong that your pastor is doing, well, listen, pal, you're not in the ministerium, okay? So you shouldn't be calling this guy out publicly or doing anything publicly. You need to just let it slide. Except that you have a bad man in spiritual authority over you. And if we publish something that is incredibly bad, that goes against Lutheran doctrine, that is the camel's nose of liberalism in the tent of confessional Lutheranism, well, go through the proper channels and maybe we'll address it at convention, maybe we won't, but, you know, you just have to accept it because you are a peon. You are a tiny little pissant layman, and you have no right to question this, especially not publicly. We're going to call you some really dirty names if you happen to question it publicly. Thanks. Bye. I have personally seen cases where the ministerium is willing to violate their own bylaws and constitutions to get things done in violation of the rights of the laity. Because after all, rite vocatus, rite vocatus, we are capable of doing these things, and we can just judge when circumstances are in edge case. The elevation of the pastoral office in Lutheranism, such that it forgets the universal priesthood of all believers, has damaged the doctrine of rite vocatus. What do I mean by that? Well, when Spener writes this, that the people ought to pay attention to the minister, admonish him fraternally when he neglects something, and in general support him in all of his efforts. What Spanner means by that is that a church, a congregation, is a gathering of priests. And they select a man to be the public priest. Thus, that means that they are his other boss. A priest or a pastor in the Lutheran church, the guy who publicly consecrates the elements, publicly holds spiritual authority, all of this, he is first among equals in his church, not the top dog. And yes, God, according to the immediate call, calls this man. His first accountability, his first priority is to serve God. His second priority, though, is to be accountable to this congregation. He should be the hardest worker. He should be the one that studies the most. He should be so dedicated that he is willing to put in six days a week in that church office or doing evangelism, running Bible study after Bible study, offering counseling freely, being there for that 3 a.m. call that says, help me, pastor, because these are priests telling him that he needs to help them out. He is a servant to the priesthood, not a priest over dirty, unwashed masses. If the Lutheran laity in the 20th century had been properly brought up to understand their high position and to understand the responsibility that that entails, you would never have seen the rise of the ELCA. You would never 
have seen Semenex happening. You would never have seen the current controversies in Lutheranism because an empowered laity would have been there to stop it. But because this doctrine fell by the wayside for the easier way of doing things, hey, just pass this along to synod, pass this along to the seminaries, pass this along to your bishop or your district president, just go through the system, dude. We've forgotten the doctrine of the universal priesthood, and we've ended up with a lower class of laity. Consequently, we've also ended up with a much lower class of pastors. This now-hidden doctrine, if it was properly observed, would have prevented a lot of disaster. Here's an example when last year a certain pastor decided that he wanted to do a drag show, a drag queen show, on the chancel in his congregation. And the congregation did not stop him for such an evil, blasphemous act. And then one young man decided he wanted to speak up about this, and he went through the proper channels to his district president, and the district president said, I failed to see a problem here. This man has been forgiven. He's confessed his sins. No big deal. If you had a doctrine of the universal priesthood of all believers present and powerful in Lutheran churches today, that pastor would never have thought to do something like that because he is accountable for the spiritual well-being of other priests. For that matter, the laity would never have permitted it. The dream of the catacomb synod is churches full of empowered, pietist laymen and laywomen who are willing to say that their minister is accountable to them. Oh yes, he deserves respect. And he deserves all honor according to his office, not according to the man. The same way I don't have to like a cop when he pulls me over, I have to respect him because of that uniform that he is wearing. He is fulfilling an office with duties associated with it. So, a pastor must be accorded respect. One may rebuke him fraternally, provided he is not blatantly speaking blasphemies from the pulpit or doing drag shows or something like that in his congregation. But yes, all of St. Paul's writings about a worker being worthy of their wages and the elders among you being worthy of double honor and an ox not being muzzled while it treads the grain, etc. and so forth. Yes, these mean that a pastor should be respected because he is your servant, because he is there for you, not because he is a better, superior human being than you. My goodness, how we have forgotten this, and things are only going to be fixed in Lutheranism once the laity says, I am a priest of God Most High, by the blood of Jesus Christ which covers me, I am going to study the word with my family. I am going to be there to forgive sins. I am going to be there in all humility to serve my family the way my pastor has to serve me. And I will support him in that even if supporting him sometimes means taking the guy outside and yelling at him a little bit when he says something heinous. And so our deacons have been instructed to be humble. 
to accept questioning and objections and concerns from the people in their home congregations. And if there's a question they can't answer, let it come up to me. Shoot me an email, very underscore Lutheran at tutanota.com because in that event, the buck's got to stop with me when it comes to what I am teaching as the minister of word here. If we have an empowered laity, then we are going to reform a whole lot of the church. Laity that is willing to question, respectfully, of course. You should still like your pastor, hopefully, if you're going to a church still, or if you are part of a house church, you should still respect your deacon, yes. But you should also be willing to exercise your office as a priest in God's kingdom. And Spener writes, that if we were to do this, a great deal, quote, would be gained and accomplished. Afterwards, more and more would be achieved, and finally the church would be visibly reformed. That is, unsubverted. If loving the word of God is step one, getting people to read their Bibles every single day to become acquainted with good doctrine and good practice, as the Bible tells us to do, the second step is to put that into practice with a universal priesthood of all believers. The more people doing that, the more God-pleasing we are going to be. And that's going to start here in the Catacomb Synod, where everybody has been instructed, you have a high status before God as a baptized believer in Christ Jesus our Lord. We should rejoice and continue on in our walk with him. Next week, we will get into his third proposal, and that's going to be a good one. That's going to be a fun one, but we'll get to it then. Until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.